they had done a preemptive strike against your book tour by issuing a public declaration against no kill saying that killing was necessary. And we had realized that the goal was to make it so that people don't buy their garbage anymore, that they know how to respond to it, to change the climate of public opinion that these groups operate in, to have them then get to the point where they are like, oh my God, we can't ignore this anymore. And sending representatives to the No-Kill Conference was was a turning point. Right. Hi, we're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. This is part three of what is shaping up to be a five-part series we call Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, where we do a sweep of animal sheltering in the U.S. from its founding by the late, great Henry Berg and the betrayal of his animal rights vision, which we covered in part one. In part two, we discussed a series of civil wars that occurred in the 20th century following that betrayal that led to a highly dysfunctional series of slaughterhouses we euphemistically call animal shelters but which were little more than pounds that killed animals and did very little else. In fact, they became the leading killers of healthy dogs and cats in the United States. That's the broken system we inherited when Ethan and I joined the movement in the 1990s, which we also discussed at the end of Part 2, specifically with our respective experiences leading up to the success in San Francisco, which ushered in the modern no-kill movement and was a whisper away from achieving no-kill itself before it got derailed. In Part 3 this episode, we're going to discuss the creation of the first no-kill community where it was achieved, how it was achieved, and how the model spread. This podcast will be much more personal than the others, given our intimate involvement in creating the first no-kill community and spreading that model. Today's episode will set up the movement as we now find it, a crossroads between success and corruption, which we will discuss in part four. And finally, what the future should hold will be the focus of the fifth and last part of this series. So let's get into it. So we ended our last podcast at discussing the downfall of the San Francisco SPCA. You were working there at the time when a new director was hired to replace the one who had created the no-kill model that had allowed San Francisco to become so successful. And this new director took over and started systematically dismantling all the programs that were responsible for the organization's success before it actually ever crossed the goal line of creating the first no-kill community. So very briefly explain what exactly San Francisco achieved and why it was that that success inspired you and I to take the goal that that model had created past the finish line. Well, so at the end of the 1990s, I basically ran all the programs of the San Francisco SPCA. Uh, I ran the animal hospital that saw over 30,000 patients a year. I ran the adoption program that did over 5,000 adoptions a year. I ran the spay-neuter program that did over 10,000 surgeries a year, over 80% of those, which were free. I ran the feral cat program, which not only provided free sterilization, but actually paid caretakers $5 for every cat they brought us to sterilize. I ran the dog behavior program, the foster program, the offsite adoption program, literally the whole range of programs of what was at the time the most successful urban shelter in the United States and the city with the lowest death rate of any urban city in the United States. So before we proceed, I think it's important to clarify for people that are listening that might not understand what the difference is between a no-kill shelter and a no-kill community. 
and and what that meant for San Francisco. Goal, like creating a no-kill community, making it so that there was no organization or agency in a city or community that was killing animals. Right. Okay. So the model we created in San Francisco was that the stray animals and owner-surrendered animals would essentially go to the city pound next door. Some of those animals would get reclaimed by their families. Some of them would go to other rescue groups. Some of them would get adopted directly from the city shelter itself. And the San Francisco SPCA, which is the shelter I worked at, guaranteed to take all the healthy animals that the city shelter put on death row bring them to the SPCA where they would be guaranteed a home. And we were taking thousands of sick and injured, traumatized, but treatable animals into the shelter as well with the goal of zeroing out those deaths. And as you discussed in the introduction and as we discussed at the end of part two, the city, the overall city death rate was the lowest of any urban municipality in the United States. and a fraction of the killing that most cities in the United States were doing to the point where we had reduced neonatal kitten deaths by something like 96%. We had reduced the deaths of dogs who had behavior challenges by something like 90% to the point where we were, as you called it, a whisper away from ending the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals and creating the first no-kill community. But Again, as we discussed in part two, a new director who came from the traditional regressive sheltering establishment, specifically the American Humane Association, began to dismantle the nuts and bolts programs that made that success possible. And the uh, San Francisco SPCA and the city of San Francisco slipped into mediocrity and abandoned the no kill initiative. At that point, I left the organization and began to look for a shelter where I can take that model and advance on it to create a no-kill community. So you were looking for a place where you could implement that model, but it didn't necessarily need to conform to the situation in San Francisco, which was where you had animal control that was taking in and killing animals that weren't rescued by the San Francisco SPCA. The reason I'm stressing this is because you could have a community, and there were communities at that time that had a no-kill shelter in them, shelters that were taking in animals and not killing them. But there were no American communities, even those that had a no-kill shelter, where there were not some other agencies, such as Animal Control or another Humane Society or SPCA, that was killing. So the goal was take that model to whatever community would welcome it and eliminate the killing of all healthy and treatable animals in that community Regardless, regardless of who it was that was, was doing the kill, was doing the kill. Right. I think one of the mistakes that people make is looking at the model that San Francisco created and thinking it was a model of collaboration between a private SPCA and a public municipal shelter. That's not what it was. It was a programs model. And I believed at the time that it didn't matter if the programs were implemented at the private SPCA and then it pulled animals out of animal control the way we did in San Francisco. Or if, for example, in communities where there was no SPCA, if you implemented that model at the municipal shelter, and I believe that if you did that, you can create 
a no-kill open admission pound. Well, as we will discuss later, the, and the way that you do that is very specific, and, and we touched on a lot of the programs that were very revolutionary in San Francisco. But the goal is whoever is doing the killing needs to replace that killing with alternatives. Correct. And that's the model. So it's a programs model. And so after my then boss at the time, Ed Sayers, brought me into his office after months and months of trying to stem the hemorrhaging of the programs that save lives. And he asked me what I thought of him as a boss. And I told him that, quite honestly, he was the worst boss I've ever had. Uh, and at that point, it, yeah, I'm sure that didn't. It became clear. I mean, you know, things were tough. I remember. I mean, things yes. were very. Yes, my tenure, then, but my that, tenure yeah. became it a was temple. Time to go, definitely. Yes. And so I began looking for another shelter and I couldn't find a job. So let's discuss what the climate was at that time. The message that was being promoted by the San Francisco SBCA was incredibly popular with the rescue community, shelter volunteers, people that could see firsthand that, that had the same experiences that we talk about in the previous podcast about running into these walls of against trying to protect animals at shelters or save their lives or collaborate with the shelter. So there was a lot of people that supported the idea of no kill. But that was mostly among the grassroots, and it didn't really penetrate a lot of leadership of shelters, boards that made those decisions. You were a recent graduate of Stanford Law School. You had been on the board of a, a, a humane society, the Palo Alto Humane Society. That's, the humane society did a lot of programs in the community, like feral cat work. We, like we had a program, for example, called Cat Works that took care of about 2,000 community cats from South San Francisco, all the way to San Jose, California. Yeah. So you had a lot of experience in that. And you also were coming from the shelter that was, without a doubt, the most successful shelter in the country in terms of life-saving and innovation. And the fact that you were the director of operations there, and the fact that it ha that you had a difficult time finding a shelter that was willing to embrace that model, I think speaks volumes about what is so dysfunctional about the animal protection movement then and now. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I had run an animal hospital, as I said. I had over 170 employees under my belt. I oversaw a $12 million a year annual budget. I had experience with capital construction in all aspects of shelter operations. But there were several things that I had going against me. One, there was how you and I, as we discussed in part two, got our feet wet in terms of standing up to California State Humane Association, the Animal Control Directors Association, in our fight against legislation that they wanted to enact, which would have meant the roundup and killing of cats, and against the opposition of virtually every shelter in the country against the opposition, again, of the state humane associations, against the opposition of national organizations like the Humane Society of the United States, we successfully passed the Hayden Act, which not just increased holding periods in California, not just required shelters to provide prompt and necessary veterinary care to ill and injured animals, and it made it illegal for shelters in the state of California to kill animals if rescue groups were willing to save them. It shouldn't have been controversial. That law is responsible for saving uh, about 85,000 additional animals every year that shelters would ha were at the time committed to killing despite rescue groups ready, willing, and able to save them. So as part of my work with the San Francisco SPCA, in addition to 
the local work I was doing and the state legislative work, we were also coming to the aid of rescuers and uh, private no-kill shelters across the country. And also, I had done some work nationally against HSUS. I had been approached by an organization called the North Carolina Outer Banks Spay-Neuter Fund. And they had gone to the county animal advisory commission and asked them if they would, of the budget that they gave the local SPCA to run animal control, would they earmark a small percentage of that to help them sterilize the community's feral cats. And the local SPCA was irate and fought them. And so they backed down. They said, okay, you don't have to pay us, but we'll just do it anyways. We'll, we'll, use our, we'll raise the money ourselves and we will sterilize these feral cats that right now are being trapped and killed at the local animal control authority, which was the Outer Banks SPCA. And the SPCA fought that too, saying that they didn't want the cats sterilized and released. They wanted the cats trapped, impounded, and they would kill them. And so the Outer Banks Spay-Neuter Fund, thinking that they would be an ally, reached out to the Humane Society of the United States. You're making the same mistake that the cat lovers at Stanford had done, thinking, well, of course, these, this large organization would help them. Yes. The, because this is their mission. Yes. <laughs> protecting so, dogs and cats. Exactly. And they actually got a fact sheet from HSUS that talked about the importance of neutering and how that helped reduce the number of animals entering shelters and therefore the number of animals killed. Even though that fact sheet was geared toward the pet cat population, they said, let's do this. Let's apply this to the cats that have no families to care for them will be their families. We will trap them. We will sterilize them. We will return them to their habitats and we will provide food, water, and medical care as needed for the rest of their lives. And so when the SPCA balked, they wrote the Humane Society of the United States, again, thinking that saving the lives of the cats was within the humane mission of the Humane Society of the United States. But uh, a man named Jim Tedford who was the regional director of the Humane Society of the United States, didn't write back to the Outer Banks Bay Neuter Fund. He wrote back to the director of the Outer Banks SPCA and said, thank you for standing firm against sterilizing these feral cats. He called sterilization instead of roundup and killing inhumane. He called it abhorrent and he claimed it was illegal, uh, a violation of the anti-cruelty laws against abandonment. And not content to write that letter to the head of the SPCA, others at HSUS also wrote the local district attorney saying these people are violating the law and essentially they should be arrested and prosecuted for caring for cats that somebody else abandoned. That's when I had gotten involved and I actually wrote a brief on behalf of the Outer Banks Spay-Neuter Fund and sent it to the district attorney and he sided with us. So already I was building a reputation throughout California and across the country as someone who spoke out for the rescuers who were speaking for the animals. Not just that, it also gives an insight into, so you're, you're trying to explain what the climate was at that time when you were looking for a job. Correct. It's an insight not but, only into your reputation as someone that would stand up to the status quo. But it also shows, given that these cat lovers in North Carolina were battling their local SPCA, is 
that that was the mindset of so many SPCAs and humane societies across the country, that it wasn't just that these large organizations were hostile to no-kill. So were the SPCAs and humane societies. Right. And more than hostile. Look to HSUS and the ASPCA and these for guidance. fighting it for guidance. Right. right. And it's it's a little bit more than hostile to no kill. I mean, they were hostile to saving lives. They were hostile to the animals. Like all these programs that would have reduced the number of animals they claimed they had no choice but to kill. They were hostile to, to those. So, you, you know, like the Outer Banks Spay Neuter Fund wasn't talking no kill. They were just saying, let's not kill these cats. Here's an alternative. And they said no. You know, we were saying in California, let's just save the lives of the uh, dogs and cats and rabbits and other animals that you have scheduled to be killed, but that these rescue groups are willing to take off death row at no cost to you and save their lives. And they said no. And then the last thing was that before I left San Francisco, we created essentially the roadmap to no kill, a brochure we discussed at the end of part two called Mission Possible, which laid out the programs and services that every shelter should implement, private SPCA or municipal shelter, in order to reduce significantly and ultimately eliminate the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals. And we sent it to every shelter in the country. And while it was well-received by private no-kill shelters and while it was re well-received by rescuers, it was not well-received by the national organizations or the, the pounds that we euphemistically call animal shelters that were hostile to the endeavor of saving lives, hostile to what should have been their mission. And so that is the context in which I was trying to find a job as a director, and that was the movement as it existed at the time. So it, it might be hard for people to understand why it is that a board would be hostile to the thing that is at the very core of their mission. Why an organization that was founded around the mission of protecting animals would not be interested in the possibility of doing that job better. That someone looking for a job who had success at another shelter and was willing to bring that sort of success to their organization. I mean, if nothing else, it's an opportunity to maybe make a name for your own organization. Right. So board members are not subject matter experts. And up until the no-kill, uh, the ascendancy of the no-kill movement, most average donors and your average American who loves dogs and cats assumed that everyone who worked at an SPCA or Humane Society loved animals and would leave no stone unturned if it meant an animal lived instead of died. So when shelters killed animals, most people assumed that there was no other choice. And when you start saying, in fact, there is another choice and say shelter killing is in fact a choice and you don't have to do it and here's how you don't do it, you know, here's how you avoid doing it, implement these programs and services, it puts shelters, and we're talking about virtually every shelter in the country at the time, on the defensive. And because these are the people holding on to the reins of power, these are the people who are the lodestars of their community. These are the people in terms of the directors who are making six-figure salaries, who are on the advisory board of national organizations like the Humane Society of the United States, who are the keynote speakers at national conferences. When you, you say there is this better way, they 
literally go crazy. And board members who join those organizations because... So board members that will ultimately be in charge of hiring who will run their organization. And, right, hiring and firing those people. Board members who join organizations because there's prestige in being on the board of the local SPCA. So, yeah, you, you get to mention that at cocktail parties. And right. Or hand out a business card that might mention that you're a board member. Right. They fall victim to what are pedestrian flaws of human nature. They fall victim to ego and they fall victim to hubris when somebody says you're doing it wrong or your organization is doing it wrong. And if people start questioning whether their organization is all it claims to be in newsletters and at cocktail parties, they get very defensive. And a kind of group mentality based on consensus that dominates boards, the safety of being in that group and going along with the crowd. The safety of the continuity of the way the organization has always been run, too. Correct. It, it, it makes you very, very risk averse. And also, I would say that there isn't necessarily an incentive to stay well informed about what's going on in your... No one's really requiring that of you as a board member to stay on the cutting edge of whatever may be going on in the field that your or your organization is supposed to be focused on. Right. That's why I said sure. they're not subject matter experts. They show up at most once a month. They do an hour or two board meeting. Well, I mean, you and I have discussed this a lot, that this has always been a big frustration of mine, that these organizations that are supposed to be so innovative and, and actually tackling problems head on end up being directed by people that are often at best mildly interested in a topic. Right. But also they make friends with other people on the board or they're already friends with them because they not, they travel in the same social circles. And it's hard to be the board member that says, that starts criticizing the very organization that your friends love and that your friends are a part of and that your that allows your friends to make a name for themselves as philanthropic in the community. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So one of the shelters I applied to was a very large, very well-known humane society in California. The fact that it was well-resourced, well-liked at the time, and well-known doesn't mean it was doing a good job. It wasn't. It was firmly in the status quo. And that is one of the humane societies that I applied yeah, I was looking for a director at the time. Right, and I applied. Right. And I got a personal phone call from the chair of the board. Uh, it was one of those phone calls that was, uh, I think, an attempt to kind of smooth over the fact that they decided not to hire me. And she said that they, the reason that they didn't uh, want to take a chance on me is because the board saw me as a maverick. They saw me as an activist and they were not willing to uh, take a risk on anything other than the status quo, even though I ran the most successful shelter. I get in the that. Country. But again, I want to stress here how frustrating it is when I hear board members talk like that, because you're not a business. You are a nonprofit and nonprofits exist a to mission. address a cause. Right. And that mission is the, is the only thing that matters. So you're you're killing animals right now and you're an organization that's supposed to protect them. And along comes someone who's interested in running your organization in a way that will eliminate or re reduce or eliminate the killing of those animals. And you think that's the risk? Right. Rather than the right. fact that you're already in a compromised situation and this person can help you get out of it. The fact that they don't see it that way. Correct. So frustrating. And so even even if you say to yourself, well, I'm a board member and yeah, yeah, the mission. I'm more interested in the business end. It's not like 
San Francisco wasn't. Oh, they, the, it was wildly successful. The most, it was probably beloved. the best resource shelter in the nation at the time because we were beloved by. This is how much we were beloved. Not only were we beloved by San Franciscans, but we had more members in surrounding counties than the SPCAs that were in that county. So we had more members in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, than the Marin Humane Society at Kill Pound. And very hostile to no kill at that right, time. did in Marin County. I mean, that's how successful we were. And so if a board member was interested in the business side of running the nonprofit, the success in San Francisco should have put those concerns to bed. But they said no. And instead, they opted for someone who was very status quo, but he and the organization he ran were being sued for sexual harassment, which they knew. And they hired him anyway. Yeah, think about that. No Kill was, in their mind, so controversial that hiring someone with a record of sexual harassment, and, and we both know that he went on to continue that pattern of behavior. At that, other, very, at that very organization. And not only that. And they hired him. Yes. That shelter became the subject of several and I, complaints for sexual harassment that they ultimately fired him for, for being a serial sexual harasser. And he claimed that the board had created a hostile work environment and resulted in him having stress-related medical conditions, and he won. So even after they let him go, they still had to pay him. And to them, that, that was, was less-, less risky. And this conversation sets up perfectly what the very unique circumstances were for the shelter that did ultimately hire you, because things had to get so bad for that shelter. And also the way that they went about recruiting kind of boxed them into a corner where they kind of felt like they didn't have a choice but to hire you right. um, at that point because because of the, the way that they had conducted their interview process. So describe what happened. Well, first of all, I ultimately did get another shelter job, but it was all the way on the other Probably side. as of far the, away as you could get from San Francisco. Right. It was literally in upstate New York near the Canadian border. That's how far away I had to go to get a shelter job and was ultimately hired as their director. But it's not necessarily because it's what most of the board members wanted. I had some champions on the board. And, yeah, there were some gems on yeah, the board. To but... this day, especially one of them, we still keep in touch. Yeah. And But it's not necessarily what the majority of the board had wanted. In fact, the... yeah, I would, I would argue that they were no less risk averse than other organizations, except that the balance of measuring what that risk was, the a figure was put on the scale because of the way that the volunteers had organized and had made their fight against the shelter shelter killing so very public at that point. Yeah. So this was the Tompkins County SPCA in Ithaca, New York. And things were so bad at the shelter and they came to a head when they started kind of dabbing their toe in what was at the time non-traditional programs. So they had actually, the director at the time, had been looking at the success that we were having in San Francisco and actually penned an op-ed in a local weekly magazine explaining why what we had achieved in San Francisco could not be achieved in Tompkins County and fell victim to the whole collaborative model. So the SPCA ran the pound for all 10 cities and the county under contract. And because there wasn't a second shelter in the community, the director argued, we can't achieve what San Francisco achieved because there's no one pulling animals from the, the animals. There's that no one saving the animals from, from us. Right. That we intend <laughs> right, to yeah. kill. 
But nonetheless, he had started to dabble in some of the programs that we were championing, like foster care and like offsite adoptions in a very rudimentary way. So not to the point as we advocated comprehensively enough so they replaced killing entirely. And at one point, a, one of the volunteers had fostered a mother cat and her litter of kittens until the kittens were old enough to eat on their own and old enough to be adopted. And these are kittens that she took care of for weeks. And finally, when they were ready to be adopted, she called the shelter and said, do you have space for them? And they assured her they did. So she brought the kittens back and she got a verbal commitment from the shelter manager that if they experienced a space crunch and they needed her to take the kittens back, she would. They had a place to go. And she wrote on their intake card her phone number on each of the kittens' cards. If run out of room, call Valerie. And she wrote her number on each of the cards. And every time she would go into the shelter, she would look to see if the kittens had been adopted yet. And one day she went in and their records were gone. And she went to the logbook to see, oh, when did they get adopted? And she looked in the logbook and found out the two of them were killed. And she was totally devastated. Devastated. Nobody called her. She, yeah, she's written, she's written about this. She's written a blog about it and she describes it. She, yeah, she didn't get the call and she fled there. She was on her bike and just tears were streaming down her face. She couldn't see. Yes, she said she was surprised that she was able to ride her bike home for two miles because she couldn't see for crying. And she said she was so visibly distraught and crying that other volunteers tried to stop her because they didn't think it was safe for her to get on a bike and ride all the way home. But she fled. And nobody called her. Nobody apologized. The issue blew up in the community. It led to other volunteers coming forward with their, with their own story. horror stories yeah. of the shelter killing animals that they tried to save, including the story of one older cat that the woman called the shelter and said, I'm on my way to pick up the cat. And they killed the cat before she got there as retribution because the shelter manager saw the volunteers as not staying in their lane. So this was the context in which the board was under siege because the local newspaper had a reporter who took the facts and rightly sided with the volunteers who were complaining about the shelter that appeared to be committed to killing animals despite life-saving alternatives. It was a huge controversy. Actually. Yes. It was in the news huge. constantly. And and the, or, and the volunteers at that time, they had become very well organized about it. They had organized and they were running a very savvy public relations campaign. But they were scared. I mean, they were very scared that they had seen the retribution that the shelter visited upon people, volunteers who spoke out against the shelter. So Correct. this was a very brave thing for them to do. It was a yeah. very brave thing to do. But they, they thought felt... they would lose all access to the animal. Correct. But they felt they had no choice because staff was not cleaning the cages. Staff had decreed that what was called the isolation room was off limits to volunteers, and volunteers knew that the animals were not getting their medication and that they were dying 
for lack of care in the isolation room. And so volunteers would sneak uh, in there. So they would sneak in it. And so the, but they knew if they got caught, they would get a lot of Right. Money. But they felt like they had no yeah. choice. These animals yeah. were dying they were gonna, anyway. They needed their medicine. In fact, they once, uh, after I got hired, they told me about how a puppy uh, jumped up uh, with muddy paws and got the skirt of the then shelter manager dirty. And that puppy was then chosen to be killed. So they felt they had no choice and they organized and they started to make headway to the point that the director resigned and they did a national search for a new director, which is when I applied, including providing the Mission Possible brochure. And they created a process where the volunteers were part of. This is where the thing that was probably cinched it for you. Yeah. That they. The volunteers were, were. All the candidates for the position were interviewed by the board. They were interviewed by the advisory board, which were people of influence and affluence in the community. And they were interviewed by the volunteers. And the board interviewed me, and I was not their first choice. The advisory board interviewed Because me. they probably wanted to go with somebody that had a more traditional career. Well, they because wanted the was, status quo. That was safe for them. Right. Even though they had just had a terrible experience Correct. hiring the status quo. And then the volunteers interviewed all the candidates, and I was their unanimous choice. Of course, because you had experienced firsthand the same roadblocks, the same uncaring, the same... Well, the bottom line is I knew they were right. And I knew... And I knew that they had the best interests of animals at heart, whereas the staff were in it for a paycheck. It was not mission-driven for them. Well, I think what resonated with the volunteers is that they realized that you were one of them, that you had the same love of animals and that you you could speak to their experiences because at that point, certainly, you, you knew what it was like to be the person fighting to save animals from a shelter that wasn't interested. That was at best indifferent and it at worst hostile. Yeah. saving lives to the point where they were killing animals that they knew had these life-saving options out of spite, out of retribution, as in order to put the volunteers in their quote-unquote place. In fact, the shelter manager at the time, after I got hired, told me that volunteers were more trouble than that they were worth and we, we ought to get rid of them, and I ended up getting rid of her. Right. I mean, so so you were the one, you understood that they were the key to life-saving, and here they were being treated so poorly. At that meeting, when I uh, met the volunteers and Valerie was there, it was the first time she came back to the shelter since they killed her kittens because she wanted to meet the candidates. We were all interviewed on the same day. And uh, she told me the story, and I apologized to her. I wasn't even hired. And I said, I am so sorry. And later on, she wrote that. The only apology that she ever got. Yeah. She said, Nathan had a reputation for being divisive and for being hostile to people. And she said, those people do not know what they're talking about. The only person that ever apologized to me for the fact that the shelter killed my kittens was a guy who was 3,000 miles away at the time the shelter did that and vowed to me that if he was hired, it would never happen again and kept his promise. And so the volunteers unanimously chose me and that put the board in a bind because they wanted to go with a more traditional status quo candidate. But but also the whole process had been made 
you know, pretty public. And they so, feared the so, Yeah. They, they, and they feared the media. In, in the media uh, outcry. Correct. And so they wanted to have one last interview with me, one last discussion with me. And I didn't want any surprises. You know, you and I were moving, we're selling our home. We were going to uproot our young family, uh, not just a four-year-old little girl and a one-year-old little boy, but two dogs and 26, 26 cats. <laughs> if we're going to pack up in 26 cats across, across the, country, the entire country to the farthest point on the right. other side of the country. This better be worth it. And you better not, you better be sure you know what you're doing. So I told them this is exactly what I would do. We went through the Mission Possible brochure and I said, in addition to references that you asked for, I'm going to give you Anti-references. Anti I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but I call them anti-references. Yes. Right. And uh, I gave them several names. One of them was a shelter director named Diane Olivada, who ran the Marin's Humane Society, was on the Humane Society of the United States Animal Shelter Committee, and was just incredibly hostile to no-kill. Another one was Kim Sterla which we spoke about in part two of this series. And she was with the Fund for Animals when she introduced AB 302 and AB 1000, those two California bills that we successfully fought that would have resulted in a wholesale roundup and slaughter of cats across the state. And ultimately, she's the one that opened the book Redemption with her public relations she, stunt. And killing the poster that I found that we mentioned, that was kind of right. my first inkling that something's not right here was a Correct. poster that she created. Right. And she's the one that argued that it should be illegal to trap cats except for the purpose of proper, proper disposal. disposal. As if they were nothing more than traps. Right. And I also gave them Jim Tedford's name. And Jim Tedford. I would love to know, to, to hear them phone calls now. Oh, well, I could tell you what Jim Tedford <laughs> said, because they told me they, that's the guy they called. Uh, oh, they I only called one of them. I don't know if they called the others, but Jim Tedford had left the Humane Society of the United States after the debacle in the Outer Banks, where he tried to get those community cat caretakers arrested and prosecuted. Him and an attorney at HSUS named Roger Kindler. And he had taken the job as shelter director in Rochester, New York, which was what? Half an hour from Ithaca? For oh, no. Well, an hour? More like an hour. Okay. An hour and a half from... So in in upstate New York, yeah. the same region as the Tompkins County SPCA, he took over a shelter called the Humane Society uh, of Lollipop Farm, which was incredibly regressive. And so they called Jim, one of my anti-references, and he said, don't, don't hire him. Do not hire him. You're making a mistake. I did have champions on the board, as I said. You know, one of them I'm friends with to this day. But they felt like they had no choice, and they hired me. And the so rest, we, as they say, is history. Yes, that's it. That's right. So we sold our home. We rented an RV, and we filled it with our cats. Our twenty-six cats, our two kids, and our two dogs, and we just hauled. Holiday across the country. I don't. I don't think we. We just. We took shifts drives. So we you drove eight hours. Hospital. I drove eight hours. Yeah, it was very yeah. stressful. Very stressful. Very so we drove twenty four hours a day, and we got to upstate New York in record time, with the goal of taking no kill from the theoretical to the real, and taking the programs model that was developed in San Francisco, which we have come to call the no kill equation, to 
a municipal shelter that was the proverbial open door pound for Tompkins County and all 10 cities. And I started my job on July 11th, 2001. And you dropped me off in a pothole filled parking lot in a shelter that was little more than a converted house. And before we even opened, there was a man standing in that parking lot holding a box of five kittens he didn't want. And so, so yeah, the shelter later would go on to build a state-of-the-art animal shelter at the time, probably the only green certified shelter in the country. The first green certified right. shelter. But at that time, it was a small little house that had converted into a shelter and was quite a, quite a ways from the San Francisco SPCA. And I dropped you off and there's, well, your welcome was a man handing you a box of kittens. And, you know, I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And so I get out of the car and I ask you to wait. And he tells me that his cat had a litter of kittens. And I remember I grabbed the box of kittens. I handed them to you and said, take them home, feed them, clean them up and bring them back after we open. And I told him, bring, bring the mother cat and we'll, we'll spare, we'll spare for you. And, you know, in his mind, he had brought the kittens to the animal control authority for the county. And what happened to the kittens was not his problem. It was our problem. And unfortunately, that is the point in the sheltering movement that we inherited where it all breaks down. That is where a traditional shelter would have said, we're going to kill these kittens and it's going to be his fault rather than ours. And, and, and not only that, but you're blaming that person for doing the thing that you're telling him that he's supposed to do when he has kittens, which is take him to the local aspect. Correct. So it's, it's very confused. It's very confused. But, you know. But he's terrible. Right. That in their mind, right? He's Eat terrible in his mind. And in fact, he should have got his cat sterilized. But, you know, I told him, bring the But you bring said the bring the cat. And, and we'll do it for and, you. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that killing those kittens was a fait accompli and that we had no choice but to do it because of his irresponsibility, that's the song and dance that the traditional sheltering establishment argued then and too often still argues today. But clearly, we did not travel two, 3,000 miles across the country in a rented RV with two kids, two dogs, and 26 cats to kill cats when I got there. So that was not an option. And not surprisingly, we found all five of those kittens' homes. And, uh, you know, that truck driver no longer lived in a county that killed animals. So on June 10th, 2001, there was not a single no-kill community in the United States. And on June 11th, there was. That is actually true, that it was an act of will. Like the moment that you started, killing was immediately off the table. And there weren't the programs in place that San Francisco had. So that summer was a scramble, like to figure out where are all these animals going to go? What are we going to do? And what are you going to do instead? Right. Keep in mind, like... But there's no way you were going to kill. No, they were... The shelter had started to put out little feelers. And so they started a small foster program. But after they killed Valerie's kittens, rather than do some soul searching and say, okay, we screwed up. Here are the policies and procedures we're going to put in place in our foster program to make sure this never happens again. They just canceled the foster program. So I inherited a very dysfunctional shelter, and I inherited it at the start of the busy summer 
season. That you inherited it. In the kitten kitten season, season, right? Yeah. And in fact, so I spent the first few days shadowing all the staff members, getting to know, you know, who's who and what they do all day. And after a couple of days of shadowing staff, we were completely full, right? And uh, somebody brought in a litter of puppies. And one of the shelter staff members said to me, okay, who are you going to kill to make room for this litter of puppies? Because we don't have any cages. And I said to her, well, what's plan B? And she said, there is none. You got to tell us. Because the first thing I did when I got there was no animal be, could be killed without my signature, without me authorizing it. So they said, who are you going to kill? I mean, it must have been interesting for them because the, the first couple of days, you didn't really give them any guidance other than no one dies. No one right. gets killed. Right. Because you wanted to see how that place operated. So Correct. you were sort of just a silent observer. I spent one day with the kennel staff. I spent another day with management. I spent another day with the adoption staff. So I was... I was just shadowing. Did so they were probably trying to figure out what is going on here. And then, and then what day was it? Day three? I can't day recall. It was a few days. The were puppies like, were brought okay, in. There, all the cages were full. And they told me who we're going to kill. Gonna kill. And so that was your, your moment where you were like, okay, time for a staff meeting. Right. So I brought all the staff members uh, to our meeting room. And I said to them, what are we going to do? So we're not going to kill these puppies. We're not going to kill these puppies. And I'm not going to kill anybody else. So what are we going to do instead? And none of them raised their hands. Any ideas? So I said to them, look. I mean, they just were not accustomed to thinking that way. Yeah. Right. There was one route. When you right. got full, you killed. And that's yeah, how you dealt with it. Right. Sheltering was always very passive and very lazy. You opened your doors at the beginning of the day. You closed your doors at the end of the day. You tallied the number of animals that come in. You tallied the number of animals that go out. And when the number of animals that come in exceed the number of animals that go out, you execute the remainder. That's how sheltering was run. Lazy, reactive, passive, cruel. And so I, when I asked the entire assembled staff, what is plan B? And none of them raise their hand. I said to them, look volunteers do what they do for free. And if I were to ask them what we should do instead of killing animals and none of them had any suggestions, I might accept that from them because I'm not paying them. But by the way, I think that they would have suggestions of volunteers. No doubt. Nonetheless, (laughs) that's what I told the staff. I said, I'm paying you to help me save lives. And if you don't have any ideas, I'm going to replace you and use the money I pay you to board these puppies until I can hire someone who can come up with a plan B. All of a sudden, the hands went up, right? And one of the persons said, we have these, because we were a rural shelter, we have these horse troughs, these metal horse troughs that you fill with water and hay to feed horses. They said, maybe we can fill it with the hay and put them in the lobby and we can put the puppies in there. And I said, okay, now you're talking. A hay trough full of puppies. Now, think about that. They're in the lobby by the door. So everybody that walks in has to walk by this horse trough filled with puppies. And they all got adopted very quickly. We've talked about this before, that it's not really saving lives. When an animal enters a shelter, historically, it's been viewed as as a death threat. And so we have this way of speaking about it as if you're saving lives. But in reality, the only threat Post to that animal is the one that you yourself present. Homelessness is not a, a fatal condition. 
or it shouldn't be. So those puppies coming in, they don't need their life saved. They right. needed a new home. Right. So I just want to make that yeah, distinction. That's so, a great it, point. It's a cer- certainly an important way to think about it because you're right. It does. If you talk otherwise, it makes it seem like the killing is a fait accompli. Correct. But it's not. You literally, as the shelter, are the only threat to the life of that animal. Right. So, so it, if you decide not to be that threat and do something else. Right. It would be like someone holding a gun to your head and then deciding not to kill you and, and thinking they, of them, they, they saved your life. Thank you for saving my life. Yeah. No, that's correct. That that, you're absolutely right. So basically what you were telling them is, we're not going to kill anymore. So we have to figure out what we're going to do instead to get these animals moving through the system. Much more effectively, effectively and efficiently. efficiently. Right. And right. So. And that I knew the process. That process was the programs and services of the No Kill Equation, but it, well, I needed time to build it we up. Had, okay. So it hadn't been called that yet. Right. That came later. We'll talk about where that came from. We, we now call that that set of programs and services, most of which existed from the San Francisco SBC, but not all. You added on to it. So. Nobody had ever really given it a comprehensive name before to try. And that was really an important thing to do to be able to explain to people exactly how you achieve, how you achieve it. Because while there was a lot of talk at that time amongst grassroots activists about stopping the killing and, and they could see that things weren't right at their shelters, what you just needed, it was as basic as you just take killing off the table and you replace it with alternatives. Correct. And so we gave them the idea, if you put all these programs together comprehensively, it's like an equation, you get no kill. Right. And we have a this No-Kill Advocacy Center. We created a great video about the No-Kill Equation that walks you at, through each of the programs and how they address the needs of all the specific groups of animals that enter shelters. So we really recommend that you go on the No-Kill Advocacy Center. And it's like a 20-minute video. I'm called No-Kill 101. Called No-Kill 101. explains right. the No-Kill Equation in detail. But in the meantime, the formula at Tompkins was animals come in. You tally the number that come in, that go out, in and fact, to execute the review. the director every day, you knew this, would walk through the shelter at night and would flip cards over. Well, the shelter manager's job at the end of every day and even before they opened in anticipation of needing cages. So, yeah, so that, even before that, that animals came in, she would- that may or may not come she in. She would turn yeah, cards we'll over and staff would go through and kill those animals, even though those animals might be adopted before, say- uh, another animal. Well, it just goes to show game. you how, like, killing wasn't even remotely a moral issue. It had just become just a standard operating procedure right. and not anything that anyone needed to be concerned about. Or struggle with. And yeah. despite the canard of how hard it is to kill animals and how we wouldn't do it if we didn't have to. So, for example, when feral cats, which we now call community cats, would come in because they weren't social with people and therefore candidates for adoption, they were killed. And so I implemented a sterilization program. Trap, neuter, return. Program. Right. Where, pe- where the cats were sterilized and uh, returned to their habitat. Cats for motherless orphan neonatal kittens and puppies. We implemented a foster care program. Uh, that foster care program was used for animals who needed one-on-one treatment or who needed a break from the shelter or when space was at a premium. In fact, one out of every four animals on average that came through the our door spent some time in foster care. And so yeah, well, when you got there, there wasn't a foster care program, and there were a lot of kittens coming in at that time. So most of those kittens ended up coming to our house. Our th- kitchen became, and our kitchen dining area there at one point it was just stacked high with. And I would, I was on a rotation of bottle feeding kittens. Where by the time I finished feeding the ones that were the last of the of them, I had to start back over feeding the other ones. Yeah, I oh, think man. we had forty nine. 
kittens. kittens. I think you called that, we called it the summer of love. We're yes. just kids, all kids. But we all were the building time. the program yeah, on the you fly. Were getting and you were training did, others on bottle feeding because others. nobody had done bottle feeding. Nobody had done it. But, but it wasn't like that the next summer. I think right. we, just because we loved to do it, we got one or two litters. But right. it, by, by the next summer, it wasn't like that. But there wasn't anything at that time. So, yeah. We expanded the adoption program. And then you also worked with rescue groups. I worked with rescue Western groups. Yeah. And in fact, I would contact breed rescue groups and ask them if they were interested. And they'd say yes. And I would always say, uh, you know, like, this is great because some of them were several states away. And I would always ask them, why, why are you transporting, say, dogs from me when you have to pass by a dozen shelters on the way? And they invariably would say to me, our local shelter refuses to work with us. And we greatly expanded the volunteer program. I wanted to make sure, for example, that dogs got out of their kennels at least four times a day, uh, you know, for walks, for dog-dog play, for splashing around in a little pool we set up in the backyard to be brushed and cuddled, and that needed bodies. And so we greatly expanded the volunteer program to walk dogs. To I remember we came home one time and you said that there was a problem that there were so many people volunteering to walk dogs that, that people would come in to adopt and there weren't any dogs in their cages. So you had to start limiting the, the numbers. That yeah, we had house. so like, see, that's the thing, like all a shelter director has to do besides implementing the programs that provide alternatives to killing is get out of the way of people who want to save lives, like volunteers, like potential adopters, like rescuers. And so we had so many people walking dogs that literally an adopter could walk into a bank of candles and there would be all these empty cages with signs saying, I'm on a walk, I'll be right back. And there'd be no or few dogs to look at for adoption. So I had to stagger the walks and limit the number of times they could get out so that when we had adopters, there would be dogs for people to see and fall in love with and take home. You also had a pet retention program where that helps reduce the number of animals that were coming in because people would call with their problems uh, that they were having with their pets and you would give them good advice. We, we had volunteer behaviorists who would work with people to prevent surrenders. We provided subsidized medical care for people who had issues that they could not afford. So what, whatever it took that, and whatever the need an individual animal had, we implemented a program that addressed that need as an alternative to what had been the historical lethal solution. And so basically overnight, the Tompkins County became the first no-kill community in the U.S. because you really did eliminate the killing of animals. And my memories of Tompkins County at that time were that this, the Tompkins County SPCA was everywhere. Like I remember I would go shopping and I in the malls, I would see recruiting posters for ad adoption or to get people to volunteer. I would drive somewhere and I would turn on the radio and it would either be you talking in the morning to the local radio personality that had you on once a week, or I would hear a PSA that you had recorded. I mean, basically, you completely flooded Tompkins County. And, and you also had a show. A You ended up doing a cable access show where you talked about the Tompkins County SPCA. At the time that we went there, it sort of had a high profile in the community because of all the controversy that had recently occurred there. But you flipped that like on a dime, and immediately that institution became 
totally beloved in, in the community. Sometimes I remember I would be at the grocery store, and this was back in the days when you could still write checks, and, and I would get people saying, Winograd, are you that Winograd? Are you, you, are you relate? Oh, I love that guy. Or I love, I love the shelter. Like it was just constant that the shelter was so high profile. There were so many volunteers and it, it just overnight, it became not just this totally beloved institution in the community, but the safest community for homeless dogs and cats in the United States. And the first no-kill And the first no-kill community in America. So just to be clear, so there were some animals that were still dying in the communities, but, but describe, describe, and that helps people understand what the definition of no-kill actually is. Our placement rate by today's standards would have been on the order of 95% plus. The prototypical animal who was dying in our shelter, for example, was a dog or cat who maybe was hit by a car and had multiple medical conditions. So we would do emergency life-saving surgery. Yeah, I remember on more than one occasion, I mean, the phone would often ring in the middle of the night and it would be that somebody had, had hit, an animal had been hit by a car usually, and then they had taken that animal to the Cornell Veterinary Hospital, which the Thompson County, hospital. the emergency hospital, and then they would call you. And so- yeah. It was funny. I mean, I, this is an interesting thing about the way your mind works is that most of us need like a cup of coffee and like, you know, 10 minutes to wake up. But you, you would pick up that phone because you would know it was if it was a call at three in the morning that it was a call about an animal. And you would answer the phone, hello? Like you'd been awake and you would ask, ask these detailed questions. And I was always just laying there in amazement going, how does he do that? But yeah, so those were the animals that were dying. Animals, you always like to say that you returned euthanasia to its dictionary definition. It, it, these were true. It was mercy killing. Right. I wanted shelters to make the same decisions for the animals in their care that you or I would make for one of our own animals. And I didn't want there to be any distinction. And so we completely transformed that shelter. And I, I remember once I was at the counter, at, at the intake counter, and this woman brought us a stray cat that she had found. And she said, oh, you're you're the director. She said, oh, you know, she talked to me about how she hears me on the radio and sees me on television because I would be on the nightly news. Oh, you also had a column in the local paper. I had a column in the local paper and I was also on the on the local news, peddling pets to the population and uh, anyways, and asking for things. So like, for example, I would say, this is our pet of the week. And I oh, and it wasn't just, okay, your pet of the week became sort of legendary. Yeah. I mean, they were like... Oh, some of them. <laughs> people crying. People, and, they were so And the next day, so 13 good. people showing up. They, were, the they could animal. be really funny. They yeah. could be just heartbreaking. Yeah. But they were like, you know, a must read in the Ithaca, Ithaca Journal. Right. And then I would do that also live on the local news. Anyway, so she comes in. She recognizes me. And she says, I found this cat. And she apologizes profusely. She says, this is the first stray cat I have brought to the shelter. And the only reason I'm bringing him was because I know you won't kill him. And she said, I, I have taken in so many strays. And I would never bring him to the shelter before you because the cat would probably be killed. And so I have a house full of cats. I haven't taken a vacation in five years. And I know that he'll be safe in your what a, what a, can you imagine the profound impact that that had on her life like this because we we've lived that you know right. knowing that you can't rely on your local humane society or s p c a and that's what your 
That's what they're there for. That's right. what they claim that they're doing. And also that's what, as a taxpayer, your money is going to fund that. And it's basically a slaughterhouse. And so you have to take on all that responsibility yourself to the point where you have a house full of cats. And then everything changes and she's seeing it firsthand. Like it right. must have been remarkable for her. Uh, that's why I always say that this this old canard that, you know, a a, a no kill shelter can't have an open admission policy. And so the traditional sheltering establishment tried to paint the alternative to the killing that they were doing as darker, that no kill required closing your doors and turning animals away. But here we were, the animal control authority, and this woman found a stray cat and said, I can take the cat to the shelter because the shelter is now no kill and open admission. And uh, the reverse, I always felt, was also misleading because a municipal shelter that is little more than an open door to the killing of animals isn't more humane. And actually, it's not even really op- open door because it would have closed its doors to that woman. Mm-hmm. It would have closed its its doors are closed to people who do not want the animals they find killed. It is closed to people who might have lost their home or lost a job or had a relative who died and their house is already filled with animals and they can't bring the animal to you because you'll kill them. So no matter how you look at it, open door is misleading when you kill animals and suggesting that you can't be open admission and no kill, as Tompkins County proved, was also a lie. Not to mention the fact that an open door just being killed is <laughs> you're celebrating the fact that your door is open to to, to kill cats and dogs right, like that's right. not More anything humane. to be proud of right. right and there's no way you can make a credible argument that that is more humane and so we were incredibly successful and incredibly beloved and our philosophy was one that we would rescue the all the animals in need and we would rescue in the true sense of the word. And so, for example, one day we got a call from the Department of Agriculture, which oversaw sheltering in the state of New York, and that they were going to clear out a puppy mill. And would we assist them by taking in animals? And they had lined up other shelters in neighboring counties to help too, but they were going to take the puppies. And this puppy mill had eight, nine, ten-year-old dogs that lived inside kennels their entire lives. Some of them lived inside pet taxis, that carriers that you take dogs to the vet with, their entire lives. There were blind animals. There were animals with rotted teeth. There were animals that were horrifically matted. There were animals with neurologic problems that walked around in circles. And the Department of Ag had no one to take those animals to would we take them? And uh, we already had a a shelter that was completely full. We did a big promotion explaining that we were going to take an influx of dozens upon dozens of needy dogs. Would the community help us by adopting and fostering? So we cleared out our dog kennels with the help of the community. We cleared out our cat kennels with the help of the community. And we took in the most heartbreaking dogs you can imagine. And I called all the volunteers in. And so we had the programs in place to help us save lives during the ordinary 
intake and adoption of animals that a shelter does. But those programs, when they are comprehensively implemented to the point where they replace killing entirely, can also be called upon during extraordinary times, such as a puppy mill bust that brings you more animals in a single day than you might take in an entire month, which is what occurred. And again, not just any animals, animals with significant health problems. And I called all the volunteers in and we kind of set up like a kind of a mash type situation. Like a triage situation. We had local veterinarians that closed their practices for the day and came in to volunteer. We had so many dogs come in with rotted teeth that a local dentist actual human dentist shut his office to come in and help. And we had groomers come in to cut the painful mats and groom the dogs. And it was it was literally like a war zone. And I remember there were so many parts moving in unison. Dentists and veterinarians and vet techs and, and groomers volunteers and, and groomers and rescue groups coming to look at the animals and foster parents. And the media media came the and media they were interested. There, yeah. Potential adopters that I realized about an hour in that I wasn't needed. Yeah, I think you I remember you telling me I went and I got a cup of coffee I and I was just watching like all these people, all the yeah. all the cogs in the wheel were, were right. turning and I grabbed a cup of coffee and I actually at one point went upstairs to my office to answer some emails and uh, things were flowing and within two days we got all those animals into rescue, into foster homes, or into adoptive homes. We cleared out the shelter the good way and nobody lost their lives. And I remember for years, I would have vets. I had that dentist who ended up being our our daughter's uh, the orthodontist. orthodontist <laughs> and telling me how that was the most profound day of their lives and how much it meant that they were a part, a part of, that. of that. The shelter became a shelter in the truest sense of the word. Euthanasia became euthanasia in its dictionary definition, and we were a resource for anybody in the community that had any issue with any animal, and they knew they can count on us to do the right thing by them and by the animals they loved. It's interesting to think that before the advent of all this success, there was nothing unique about Tompkins that couldn't be replicated elsewhere. There are enough animal lovers in every community to overcome the you know, irresponsible, irresponsible of the few. Of, of the few. Right. And the, it's that the shelter when they were killing, it was the same public, right? The same public that they were thwarting time and time again, the same public that they had been blaming was the reason they had to do all this killing. That public, when they were recruited and allowed to do the thing that they always wanted to do, the animal lovers, that's what you end up with. Right. See, that's the thing. When we got to Tompkins County and when I took over the shelter, I didn't have to convince anybody. That saving was – that not, that that not no, killing these animals was, was a, good a good idea. idea right? right. And so all – they wanted that. All I had to do was to show them how by implementing the programs and get out of their way. Well, and – and to tell them that it was possible. Tell Believe that, in it. Right. Like that, that is the hardest thing, believing that it's possible or e even believing and trying, right? That's at the time, the at the time, because there were no other no-kill communities. Today, that excuse doesn't wash, given the massive success of those that implemented the model of Tompkins County in their own communities and achieved similar success and in some cases even surpassed it. So, given the advancements in veterinary and behavior medicine. 
That was one of the myths that Tompkins County blew up, that in order to save lives, you had to reform an irresponsible public, when in fact the opposite was true, that in order to save lives, you had to reform Reform an irresponsible shelter. Right, and let the public help you save lives. I think, so one of the problems with other shelters is you get yourself into this certain way of operating and you're rigid about it and you're not creative and you're not flexible. And I think- And all of that stems from distrust of the public. Distrust of the public and also fear of innovation, being risk averse. So you have extraordinary circumstances that might require extraordinary responses rather than thinking- like with the puppy mill bust that, well, these are all animals with all these different myriad of problems that, you know, there's nothing that can be done is, well, we're going to try. And and you address the needs one by one as they come in. Like you, you have the flexibility to be able to do what needs to be done in the moment. And most important of all, to think creatively and outside the box. And you can do that even on an individual basis when you without you know like an extraordinary circumstance like the puppy mill bus so so, re- so your goal becomes how do we maximize doing the best job that we can do with the goal being that we find good and loving homes for all these animals instead of killing them right for every single animal and everything in your shelter is subservient to that goal right and treating every person as an individual so for example once we had a gentleman and his the wife come in and they wanted to adopt a cat. And this was when I first started at the shelter. And he's filling out the adoption application and he starts crying and he walks away. And his wife says, I'm so sorry. He's really emotional. We lost our cat of 16 years a year ago today. And he wanted to mourn her for a year out of respect for her. And now that the year is gone, we're here to adopt another cat. And I was so moved by it, right? But the shelter manager at the time denied the application because one of the questions that was asked when I first got there, the adoption application. Which you changed. (laughs) Was where is this cat going to go? Indoors only, outdoors only, indoor, outdoor. And they circled indoor, outdoor. Right. And the shelter was killing cats at the time and had a policy that cats belonged indoors, following the dictates of, of, HSUS of the Humane Society and the ASPCA. ASPCA. With the idea that something bad would happen to the cat if they go outside. So we're just going to go ahead and do that bad thing now. Kill the cat, right? Kill the cat and deny good homes because maybe in five years, something bad might happen. It makes no sense. Right. It's an ethical contradiction. But, and we weren't in downtown Manhattan. No, I mean, it was a rural community. Right. Ithaca does have a small kind of downtown city area, but most of Tompkins County was rural. Right. And 16 years. The cat lived with him for 16 16 years. years. And she explained what happened to 16 years, what happened to mourn the cat. For a year. I mean, that is the best. That sounds like the best possible home that you could have. So I called when they were walking out. I called them back and I said, take the cat. I didn't ask them to pay anything. I Can you imagine how that made them feel? Right. That they, that they, that they walked out of there being told you're not worthy of right. one of these animals. And right. they knew how much they had adored. I knew that the cat that they adopted, I would never see again. For 16 years, that cat would live in a home where when that cat died, that gentleman was going to cry for a year. And we were about to say no. So I was like, we have to treat every animal as an individual and we have to treat every person as an individual. 
And it kind of reminds me of another situation we had where I we got a call from a woman who said she was out of town and her friend was watching her cat and her cat got out and because he was not in his normal neighborhood, got lost, right? What ended up happening was the cat got scared because the cat, he didn't recognize the neighborhood. And actually somebody found the cat hiding in the bushes meowing. She described the cat. She described the town where he went missing, a black neutered male cat. And I said, a long haired cat. And I said, oh yeah, we have that cat here. And I said, we're open in two hours. And the redemption fee, which is set by the town. So we didn't we, we didn't set the fees because we had to pay those fees directly to the towns we contracted with for animal control to reclaim the cat. Uh, we're open in two hours. And within 10 minutes, there's a pounding. Door, <laughs> right? And it's the woman. She's here for the cat. And she said, I want Dale. And so I said, okay. Well, okay. Well, first of all, you said, okay, and you went and opened the door. But any other time that this woman would have come to that shelter at that time, they would have said, come, come back, back in two, two hours. hours. Although you could clearly see she had been- Distraught. Just utterly distraught. And you know? relieved that her cat and, was And there. wanted to lay out, make sure that was her cat. And Yes. Yeah. So she's- So, so I of course you opened the door. Opened the door and- she says she's here for Dale. It's so Dale. that's one rule you're breaking. Yes. You're letting her come in before you actually right. are officially open. Number so two. She calls out, Dale? Oh, I think you told me what, that as she was moving, yes. she started saying Dale the when minute she, was she in the got lobby. in the lobby. Right. Dale! Yeah. <laughs> and he was he was responding. So she From was, the other room. Right. right. And she was, I, I think he described it that she was like wild-eyed, like she just wanted her cat. So right. she wasn't even, she was just following the sound of his voice. Right. So she yells out, Dale? And Dale goes, wow. And <laughs> he so she, back. she says Dale louder, Dale? And he's louder. He's like, Wah. She brushed past me in the lobby. She went into the back and she comes out with Dale in her arms. And he's literally, his head is there. It's a re- lovely reunion, reunion and everyone is relieved. Right. And she, she drops <laughs> a quarter, a dime, and a penny on the counter, 36 cents, and says, that's all I have. Is that enough? And I said, yes, that's enough. Of course. Yes. And we ended up paying the rest to the town because we have to give the town $16 for every redemption uh, at the time. So we paid the remainder. She left. And I remember the criticism by some that if she could not afford to pay the the reclaim fee, why did we give her back the cat? You know, like, because- Do you think that this woman, there isn't any way that Dale would eat first if it ever came to that? First of all, Dale had a rabies shot. Dale was neutered. Dale was plump. So he's getting yeah, plenty of course. to eat. And Dale was deeply, deeply loved. And I know what it's like living paycheck to paycheck, right? Like sometimes you just don't have it. And it didn't matter. If there was anything that Dale needed that was, she couldn't afford, yeah. we were there for her. And we were there for Dale. And that's the philosophy we brought to sheltering in Tompkins County. And, and I'm just going to say, she was a taxpayer. So she had actually been paying for the shelter. Right. This was her, through her community taxes. shelter. Exactly. Yes. And, and we there were to there. provide a service. In, in a democracy, we have to be responsive to the needs of the people that pay our salaries. So Tompkins County was, you know, very popular in the community. So many people were volunteers. I mean, you had created it that you wanted it to be such a welcoming environment for people that people would go there just to hang out and visit. Um, It was an open door and the welcome mat was out. You know, there was a time where 
somebody called us and uh, said that when when were we having our next offsite adoption? And I said, well, we have offsite adoptions every day, but we only have sometimes two, three, four, five, six, ten animals. Uh, you can come to the shelter where we have hundreds to choose from. And I remember they said, oh, I would never go there. And I said, why not? And they said that they didn't want to look at the animals that they didn't choose because they might be killed. And I explained to them, oh, no. No, we don't kill them anymore. We don't kill them anymore. And like it, it became not just safe for the animals, but safe for animal lovers to come and visit. I imagine the uh, volunteers that went there. I, I got to imagine b- before you came and knowing what the volunteers had been through, it, it was truly an, a labor of love. Like it, it couldn't have been pleasant because every time they went in there, they probably kn- didn't know. In fact, you one volunteer, a longtime volunteer there said that she just, there was a book that was where the animals that had been killed were recorded. And sometimes she would come in and she would see that a particular animal that she had seen last time she was there wasn't there, but she didn't want to know because it was, I mean, how could you, how could you keep going back? I mean, it must've been such a weight lifted from their shoulders to have it become the happy, wonderful place that it became. Right. So definitely it was loved by the animal lovers in the community, the wider public, the volunteers, but not everybody was happy because the pressure that uh, that created on surrounding communities and their shelters was pretty intense. It was so public and so high profile. There was so much, you know, you were you had made sure that the organization had such a high profile in the community that other people in other communities were noticing and wondering if they can do that there. Why can't we do that here? And I remember one day I was up in my office and the intake person calls me and says, the chair of the Cortland County SPCA shelter, which is the shelter in the county next to Tompkins. And that was a shelter that also had the contract for animal control to run the municipal shelter, wanted to speak with me. And he drove, and we're talking 20 minutes door to door from the Cortland County SPCA to the Tompkins County SPCA. He drove 20 minutes to our county to tell me if I could tone it down because we were making their shelter look bad. What made made him think that you would do that? Like that you owed him anything? Like... It's a pretty shocking thing to do, and and a pretty um, it bald admission of your own failure. Right. That, can you tone down the success that you're having because it makes us look bad? Right. Rather than thinking to himself, well, what are they doing there that we could do here? Like that's not, Absolutely. and that again goes back to boards. Right. <clears throat> and what what adding insult to injury? Before he made the trek to come and complain about our success, making him look bad. I had this love-hate relationship with empty cages. I loved empty cages because it means our animals are getting adopted, right? But I hated empty cages in the sense that every empty cage was a lost opportunity to save an animal. Now, we were the animal control authority, so we were getting all the animals from Tompkins County, but we were surrounded by counties that were killing animals. So whenever we had empty cages, I would call surrounding shelters and say, I I can take 20 of your cats or 30 of your cats or half a dozen of your dogs or a dozen of your dogs. And I remember once I called Cortland County and said, hey, we can take 20 to 30 of your cats. You can pick them. I wasn't limiting it to kittens and young cats. I said, just bring us any 20 to 30 of your cats and bring them to the shelter and we'll find them homes. And I didn't say this, but they wouldn't have to kill them, right? Or they wouldn't kill them. 
And I remember being, we were put on hold and they came back and said, nobody here wants to make the drive. It's too far. So think about that. Wow. Uh, They're willing to make the drive to complain. To complain complain that you're making them look bad. Right. But you say the lives of 30 animals, they've decided they're going to kill. It's too far. And they they can't make that drive. I I mean, that just goes to show you the mentality that dominated. And again, puts the lie that no one wants to kill. No one wants to kill. Yeah. We would leave no stone unturned if it meant that an animal lived instead of died. No. Right. And so here is this board member willing to make the drive to complain, but- no one there is willing to make the drive to save 30 cats. And so I tell my shelter manager, can you go just pick out 20 or 30 cats and bring them back? And so they would drive, they would pick out the cats, and then they would come back. But it was so hard for them because, again, they were leaving some cats behind fearful that they were going to get killed. It's in, some of that staff was there when Tompkins County killed. And right. I remember that you an interesting thing that you told me that you saw some staff had to go. Some right. staff was- About half the staff was Had to leave. Or, yeah. Because they were quit. just part of the old school mentality right. and they were uh, not on board and Road didn't dogs. care. They didn't right. care. Right. But I remember one staff member who in the beginning was sort of a problem, but kind of came around, get coming to you and saying, I don't want to kill anymore. Right. Even though these were animals that were- They were dying. Suffering. Yeah. The animals right. were dying anyway, but she's like, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to. Right. And, and she had come so far. Right. Like, and this staff member, the staff members that you sent to get these cats, they were the same. Like they had been there. They had been part of the old school right. mentality, but they got to the point where- they knew at that – they had experienced something else and they were like, oh, man, I, we, if any cats we leave here – Are going to be killed. So in a weird way, they were redeemed. Like they, right. they became – they probably the people they were when they thought it might be fun to work at the local animal shelter. Right. They became that person again. Once again, you treat every animal as an individual and you treat every person as an individual. And one of the days where we had empty cages, I sent the staff, I said, go to Cortland and bring me cats. And so they come back and, you know, it was always hard for this one staff member to pick the cats because it was kind of like a Sophie's choice, right? And so one day she came back and she had like this unusual grin on her face. And I said, did you bring me cats? And she said, yes. I said, well, how many did you get? And she said, all of them. Because she did not, she could not do it anymore. She said, I can't do it anymore. I can't go there and pick 30 and leave another 50. So every time I sent her, she literally just cleared And her faith was that, like, having seen that you would rise to the occasion, that the whole shelter would, okay, fine, we'll we'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. I mean, it really did come down to it where she understood how much of a choice it actually was. It wasn't a fait accompli that these animals needed to die. Right. She couldn't couldn't tell herself that anymore. Right. And even though we had 20 empty cages, and we were going to put 20 cats in there, if she brought me 80... You'd figure it out. We'd figure it out. Right. We would double up cats. And also, I love that she wasn't... Cages. You were her boss. I love right. that, that she wasn't afraid of you. She knew that you'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then over time, a beautiful thing happened. And that is not only did we take all their cats, but they started taking our staff. And my shelter manager went to work for them and my dog behaviorist went to work for them and volunteers who used to not be welcome in Cortland County but lived in Cortland County and were Oh volunteers that were at the us. shelter they could go now work at Cortland went to Cortland County and they became a no kill community and the success that we had in Tompkins County started to have a domino effect 
in surrounding communities. And Cortland was the second, and it began to spread through central New York from there. So, yeah, basically what you're saying is that it and, – and if you see this sort of domino effect, truly there wasn't anything particularly unique about Tompkins that didn't exist in every American community. Every American community has people who love animals. And at that time especially, there was news of what was happening in Tompkins s- spreading throughout the rescue community in the country and, and volunteers, like it was getting out and and there was so much excitement and so much enthusiasm that we knew that if we could take the model of Tompkins County and spread it across the country, that wherever there was a community that adopted it, it would it would be like a, con- a good contagion, that it would spread to other communities around it. And that the more that we could sprinkle this model across the country, the more influence it would have and grow and create what our ultimate goal was, which was creating a no-kill nation, ending the killing of dogs and cats in American animal shelters. And rabbits and hamsters and and mice and other animals. Uh, And we started to see that even while still in Tompkins, because I had an attorney like myself show up at the shelter and said, look, I just got the job running this animal shelter in Virginia, and I want to do what you did here. And I took that attorney under my wing, and then I went there to train their staff and created the second no-kill community in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so, yeah, we knew the model would work and it would work. Uh, you know, when when San Francisco, even though it never achieved no-kill, it was very close. And when San Francisco brought death rates to national all-time lows, one of the excuses that shelters still steeped in killing or the staff at shelters still steeped in killing would argue was They can do it there because they're a wealthy urban community. We couldn't do it, for example, in our community because we are a rural community with uh, fewer resources and more antiquated views of animals. And when we went to Tompkins County and created the first no-kill community in a rural community, you know, they offered other excuses. So they could always point to something unique in their minds to, to explain away the success why and why it wasn't replicate you couldn't replicate it elsewhere right and you know one of the arguments was you know san francisco and new york were were northern communities you couldn't create that success in the south and so i went to a community in virginia and helped create a no-kill community in the south and so yeah I knew that the success was replicable in every community. It didn't matter if it was northern or southern, urban or rural, rich or poor, politically conservative or politically liberal. All that mattered was whether the shelter was implementing the programs and services that we've come to call the no-kill equation. And given that success in New York, given that I started to become a featured speaker in conferences around the country and even internationally. I went to, for example, to the Canadian Federation of Humane Societies and introduced for the first time uh, TNR to the, the Canadian humane movement. And others like that Virginia shelter director were asking for assistance. And our shelter was humming along, doing well. I had a stellar staff. I had a good shelter manager. And I couldn't do both. I couldn't run the local shelter full time and also help spread the model nationwide. I was I was being pulled in a lot of Yeah. Directions. I mean, ultimately, the story we tell, I mean, it required you were traveling in the years after that so much that it would have been really difficult to also be running the shelter. And so 
So I turned the shelter over to my shelter manager, and we decided to create an organization, the No-Kill Advocacy Center, in order to Ithacanize, to replicate the success of Ithaca, New York, of Tompkins County, New York, to shelters nationwide, knowing that if we did that at the time, the United States was killing about 5 million animals a year, that we could save 4.8 million of those, 4.9 million. Yeah, I remember one of the articles, there were several articles that discussed um, when you announced that you were leaving to form the No-Kill Advocacy Center. And I remember one of the headline referenced the fact that you were going to Ithacanize shelters across the country. And in fact, that's what we did. And that's what we did. <laughs> so in 2004, we founded um, the organization that we run today, which is the No-Kill Advocacy Center. And the goal of that organization, obviously from the name, was to advocate no-kill policies in shelters across the country. By spreading the no-kill equation. By spreading the no-kill, what we what we would come to call the no-kill equation across the country. We had had all these experiences and we were not naive. We, we really knew that the entrenched shelter interests represented by the large national organizations like HSUS and the ASPCA and shelters that were operating in communities that were hostile to no-kill principles – that continuing to appeal to them was in vain because they were not interested in changing. And if we were going to change the way shelters across the country operated, and that required changing large influential organizations and getting them to stop being so hostile to no-kill, that the thing that we needed to do was change the climate of public opinion in which those organizations had to operate. Like you could write them letters extolling the virtues of various programs till your fingers bled, but it, they were not going to change unless they felt the pressure to. Right. So our goal was singular, and that was promote this model by teaching people how to think differently about these problems and and appeal to the grassroots, a appeal to the people that already wanted the killing ended and ended in their communities and give them an understanding of why that killing was occurring and what they should be advocating for. They knew the killing was wrong, but in terms of exactly how you go about ending the killing, there was still a lot of confusion. Well, they didn't have the ability to compare and contrast. So yeah. th they could see these animals coming in and things were ineffective and inefficient and staff was hostile to the innovation. And so they knew that there was more that could be done. They weren't necessarily sure what that was and to what degree. And if you did those things, how much of the killing you could replace. So the goal was to arm the grassroots by debunking the myths that people had accepted for the killing, like the myth of pet overpopulation, or that the killing was the irresponsible public's fault. Or that the public was your enemy instead of your ally. Right. And to give them the tools that they needed to ask for and how to ask, how to demand things from their local city council or board of supervisors or county commission, uh, how to run a media campaign to force the shelter, if the shelter was not going to adopt these programs willingly, how to force them to do that through the way nonprofits have always advocated for change. Advocacy, legislation, litigation, education. So in order to do that, you started putting out a, a newsletter and you were speaking at conferences at that time and you were sharing this good news. But I realized that so much of the stuff that we ended up creating, things that are still available today on the No-Kill Advocacy Center website, something we call the No-Kill Advocates Toolkit, all the guides that we created there that help give people the information they need, whether it's to create a no-kill community themselves if they're a shelter director or how to, like as you mentioned, go about mounting a political campaign for reform 
not not dissimilar from what happened in Tompkins, I would say, but then was replicated in other communities. Or like one of our guides, for instance, is responding to the 10 predictable excuses, recurring excuses from the entrenched shelter director. And we walk through, okay, if you're going to fight for no-kill, these are the 10 things that they're going to say, and this is how you respond to that. It's too expensive. It's the public's fault. No it, one wants no kill to kill. No-kill leads to hoarding. Right. No-kill means releasing dangerous animals in the community. The kind of predictable patterns, patterns. that we And it was always seeing. the same because they definitely had a playbook too, like that they that they used against no-kill. Not, not only from our experience in the communities that we discussed, but at the time, as you said, I was traveling constantly and I was going uh, from community to community helping rescuers and reform advocates and even legislators who wanted to change, in some cases, board members, uh, in some cases, shelter directors, and having success creating no-kill communities around the country. And we kind of started to see these similar Similar patterns patterns emerge. I mean, you can't say that we went to Tompkins and we knew everything that we needed. I mean, Fascinating to consider that although the, I think that the pieces were there in terms of being able to make that leap in our imagination, we had the evidence in front of us, but as can often happen, sometimes you need the right experiences to make the things that are staring you in the face obvious. But I still remember the day where I, I remember walking into your office. I can't remember what you had recently finished writing. And I remember saying to you, is, I think pet overpopulation is a myth. And I remember it was this like Dawn. dawning on both of us. We were like, well, yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating to think that even all those experiences that we had were clearly it was the shelter. It, even saying those words that pet overpopulation is a myth had never come out of our mouth until that moment. And it was like this dawning awareness of things. Like it was getting these glasses to see the experience of San Francisco and then Tompkins, not just repeated in- And then Charlottesville then everywhere and then Washoe in the County same patterns the growth over and over and over again. And, and that really led to the idea that the most effective way to get people to understand something is to give them the history, is to tell them the story. And so that led to the you to sit down and write Redemption. Right. Your first book. Even if going in, we didn't have that knowledge. To the extent that necessity is the mother of invention, I wasn't going to go into Tompkins and kill animals, right? I didn't know that pet overpopulation was a myth. I knew which programs were successful in San Francisco, but given that I was taking over an animal control shelter, it wasn't clear what everything that I would face and how to respond to them, like the hoarding bust of the puppy mill, right? Like that puppy mill bust that brought this cascade of not just problems you see in sheltering, but all these problems you see all in one day, right? And, you know, I remember- All in one day and then overcoming it. Right. Yeah. Because you took killing off the table. And, and it so forced you it to- It forced you to be innovative and creative, right? And to find solutions that with hindsight, they seem obvious in some Yeah, that's cases, the thing about but- it is that some of this seems obvious in hindsight. And, right, but and it yet, wasn't then it wasn't because then. there was no roadmap and there was no there was a partial playbook, but it had wasn't complete. And I remember once that a board member asked me, "How did you know when you came here that you were going to be successful overnight? That you were going to create no kill overnight?" And I remember saying, "I was afraid of coming home from work and having my wife ask me, what did you do at work today?'" And the idea that <laughs> I would have to respond, I killed. Get out! <laughs> yeah, like, so necessity drove 
innovation and the idea that if you couldn't do this one thing, which was kill, that you just throw up your hand I mean, and I, say there's nothing else we can do. That is so contrary to the history of our species. Also, I mean, I do remember that there were friends of ours that had advised you not to do it. They were like thinking that maybe you – Not to take the not job. Not to take the job. Like, right. And they were – Animal people that we respected, but right. they were like, "That's it someone has to kill in their minds." Yes, and and all those experiences that we'd had that then would later inform the dawning awarenesses that we would have about what people needed to hear and about what the tr- I would say the true nature of reality is that like you're living in a we have been living in Plato's cave, a fog. And and all these myths and rationalizations, all these things that we've been told to explain the killing. And it isn't profound to say now that the way that you stop the killing is to replace it with something else. Right. But at that time, that was a revolutionary statement that right. it was really that easy. That right. it was killing animals. Well, I, I wanna it's it's not complicated, but it is hard. Work. Well, the the work itself, but of course, it's true by definition. If right. you're not killing, you're doing something else. Right. So you're either killing these orphan neonatals or you're sending them into foster right. care. Right. And it, you're not going to kill the kittens and they're hungry. You want to allow them to live to go right. to a home. So right. obviously you got to – and who's going to do it? Well, let's ask people to right. bottle feed them. It seems obvious at the at the time. It seems obvious now. Now. But right. yeah, definitely. It, it wasn't as obvious in the moment. It's just that we needed to say what needed to be said to make sure that animals would continue to live instead of die. And then certain, I would say, maxims or truisms about the situation would just started to like come into such intense focus. Yeah, let me. Yeah, I, I want to give an example. So there was a time, for example, where I was working with the shelter in Washoe County in Reno, Nevada. And so you had been hired as a consultant after you left Tompkins. It was another thing you were doing, consulting with shelters across right. the country. They had hired you because they wanted to embrace no-kill. Well, so the shelter ended up killing a dog. There was this uproar in the community. The director ended up resigning, and the board brought me in. I worked with them for six months or a year. You know, Literally, of the 60 staff members, I think only two were allowed to remain. I completely rewrote their policies and procedures. I hired a new director. And I remember one weekend, the roads department, the local department of transportation was going to redo the road outside the shelter. And so as not to disturb the commute traffic during the work week, they were going to do it on the weekend. But the weekend is the busiest adoption days of the week for the shelter, and they were packed with animals. And they did not want to close for the weekend. All the other businesses in the area were closing for the weekend because there would be no access in or out. So I remember the director we brought in called me up because I was still working with them and uh, with with this particular director. And she says to me, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't lose a weekend's worth of adoptions. So again, like the idea that if you can't do this one thing, there's nothing you can do. I said, reach out to the roads department and ask them if they would stagger rather than close the road for the weekend, do one side of the street one day and the other side the other day so that at least one direction could be open so that you don't have to close total access to the shelter. And they did that. And then I said, let's set up cages and tents outside the shelter, you know, on the side where the road is open. And 
you know, to make it clear to anyone going that they were open. Right. Is that why? Yeah. Yeah. And put out an ad in the paper, a pardon our dust adoption event. And let's have someone dressed up like a dog and a cat with, you know, one of those signs directing traffic that we're open for adoptions and put out a full page ad and actually convince the roads department to pay for the ad. And what normally would have been a disaster for them in terms of lost adoption turned out to be their busiest adoption weekend they've had in their history. Basically, you were taking lemons and then turning it into lemonade again and again. How do I take this situation that seems like it might be a disaster disaster and turn it into something? Yeah. So instead, especially if you're appealing to the public. And you're saying, hey, we have this problem, and can you help us out? Time and again, the public rises to the occasion. Instead of looking at things as roadblocks the way the shelter community had been doing for a century, let's look at them as opportunities. Let's look at them as speed bumps to over challenges to overcome, and time and time again with shelter working with shelters like one day that same shelter took had a hoarding bus where they took in something like three hundred orange cats, and instead of turning you know lemons into lemonade, they turned it in oranges into <laughs> the great orange cat rescue. Yeah, the great orange cat rescue, and uh, and adopted out all the orange cats. I mean, you can. By appealing to what is best in people, by making it easy to do the right thing, and as you said, by employing what, with hindsight, seems a very unprofound thing to do, replace killing with alternatives. Treating each person and each animal as an individual, a shelter can transform itself and also transform the community. And that is the philosophy and the program's model that the No-Kill Advocacy Center wanted to spread nationwide to save, you know, 4.8, 4.9 million of the 5 million animals that were being killed every year at the time through step-by-step guides, through litigation, through legislation. So the No-Kill Advocacy Center, for instance, you know, in those communities where they have hostile shelter leadership that's hostile, you've you've helped shelter volunteers that have been kicked out of shelters for publicly criticizing them. You've helped them get reinstated. We've initiated impact, groundbreaking lawsuits. We've passed legislation in cities that have caused death rates to plummet. We've passed statewide legislation that have helped death rates plummet. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about mo- more about that because I think in the in terms of what we should be doing now, which will be this focus of a future podcast, litigation, I'm, legislation definitely plays a, a big role in that Like because we know that you can actually, from our experiences in doing that, legislate no kill and get shelters to reform because they don't have a choice. Right. And that's something that our movement should be focusing on so much so more, much more than it, it is. Doesn't. And it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we already have promises that we're doing the best we can or we'll strive to be no kill in five or 10 years. And no other social movement accepts those promises. What What those social movements want is laws passed that makes it mandatory and prevents the alternative. And they work. I mean, they do work. So we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll talk about it. But I mean, that that is one of the tragedies right now is that the one thing now that we have this model, why are we not working to get it pa- to get legislated, le- nationwide. legislated nationwide? And, right. and the organizations that are big now that are claimed to be representing this movement 
aren't doing that at all. In fact, if anything, and we can tell those stories later, is that they have went in when we've tried to introduce a lot of this legislation, they, they fought have fought it. it. Right. Well, we'll talk it. about it in the next. Yeah. Okay. Part. So anyway, so the next thing that you did then was okay, you're going to write a book right. and you're going to tell the story and then you're going to go on a book tour. So the idea was that we would take. As we were learning all these different things and creating these resources for people, we also wanted to spread that model. Their social media didn't really exist at that time. It did not really exist at the time. And so we were- We wanted to Johnny Appleseed the no-kill equation by going across- By seeding it across Seeding it across the country. So we went on a 30-city book tour to hand out free copies of Redemption and to- Tell the that story. was in 2008, right? That was in 2008, 2008, 2008 and 2009. 2009. And as that tour continued, the crowds just kept getting bigger. Yeah, it was. Bigger, yeah, but I, it's an interesting story to tell. The, the very first, so it was, well, the very first place you went after you wrote Redemption, the history buff that you are, you wanted to start the, the book tour for Redemption in a very historic place in the American Revolution, which was Concord. Concord, Massachusetts. Concord, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, The site of the first first shot of of the American American Revolution. Revolution, Because we were launching a different that that was that was true. I mean, that really was the mindset we were bringing to it. Is that we are going to like we were going to end the ancient regime of shelter killing. And I mean, the book is called "The Myth of Pet Overpopulation." And well, it's called "Redemption: The Myth of Pet Overpopulation and the No Kill Revolution in America." So we wanted at the at the site of the revolution. So we went to that museum, the Revolution. Yeah, it was it was really cool. And. So in terms of serendipity, at the time, they were also having a display on uh, Henry Berg and sheltering in the United States. That's right. I remember that. Is that one of the reasons why the rescue group that sponsored it had you come there? I do not know. I remember because they had one of those, what stuck in my mind was, and we talked about in podcast one, one of those butter churns that the dogs dogs had to work on, an actual one that they used to make the dogs work on. And so I gave this presentation where- Okay, but but first let me say this. Let me preface this because nowhere before this had you said the things that you said the way that you said them on that book tour. And the thing is, even though that a lot of people knew, we knew that there was a lot of support for the idea of not killing. We had at that point had uh, had evolved in our thinking to the point where we realized that so much of the killing rested on these myths that every everybody believed in, one of them being pet overpopulation. So going on this book tour and telling even people that loved the idea of no-kill, that everything that they thought that they knew about shelter killing and the things around which they had probably crafted a lot of their advocacy up until that time in the belief that the public was the problem because and we needed and, to- And the public created pet overpopulation. And the crea- that there was public created pet overpopulation and that was the problem that needed to be addressed and which was why this movement had been spinning in circles for so long because they were addressing a phantom problem rather than the real one. Which was the way the shelter operated. It's the shelter ground. It's, it is the shelter and you have to change and the shelter. And before you go on, I think there are some people probably listening to this where the notion of pet overpopulation being a myth is-, is probably still a bit of a shock. And so we also have a video, The Myth of Pet Overpopulation. Yeah, that's true. uh, Or we walk you through it. On the Center website, which walks you through the numbers, both the supply side, which we know, those are the number of animals entering shelters, and the demand side of the equation, and other factors like the fact that not just Tompkins County, but that the vast, vast majority of the 
hundreds of communities across the country with placement rates in the 95 percentile and higher achieved it in six months or less, often before these programs were implemented, well before a comprehensive sterilization program was implemented, and many of them overnight. So yeah, they replicated that success. So yeah. if there was pet overpopulation, that would have been impossible. That would have been impossible. Right. So just okay. have an open mind, go watch the video. And look at the numbers, but, both the supply side and the demand side. Okay. But so that your your comment there makes an interesting point. It is precisely that mindset that even today you have to say to people, whoa, 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 yeah. Hear me out. Right. I have the evidence to back it up. Right. Which is you are getting up and you are getting in front of this crowd of people. And at that point, with this message that while you had been promoting the programs prior to that at different conferences, you had never really put it all together and said, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly what's happening and why everything that you think you know about animal sheltering and why animals are dying is wrong. And this, if you want to be successful... This is the way you need to start thinking. Yes. And the, I, the, wait, the one <laughs> thing I would say, because what matters is not what you think. Yeah, you would always say, it doesn't matter what you think. It, it it's also, what the evidence yeah, proves. It also doesn't matter what I think. Right. What matters is what the evidence shows and what the experience proves time and time and time again. Yeah. And one thing we haven't talked about is, well, I guess we have. We we did mention the fact that there was this other model that was being promoted that was resulting in a lot of roundup and kill legislation, yeah, legislation licensing legislation. Sterilization so that we talked at the about same, right. Two. At the same time that, that we started really promoting the no-kill equation, there was this other way of addressing shelter killing being promoted. And even though it had never been successful. And it had never been successful. Even in fact, the rescue it, community it, it, was committed right, to Right, because they believed, they believed a lot of the myths because they had – you're right. They had nothing to contrast it with. In fact, I remember when we came back in, from Tompkins County and something occurred in San Francisco that you were asked to go speak at. And I remember a feral cat caretaker there that was a friend of ours. I had just come back from Tompkins and I had seen the way the shelter was run and how feral cats were treated there, community cats. And I had like, I had seen the promised land and I came back and she still had that apologist language. Some of it even making apologies for how regressive the animal control shelter was. And I just remember thinking, you have no idea how this is completely intolerable, what, what this shelter is doing, because you don't have that contrasting experience. And so it was sort of you were asking people to make a leap of faith based on what you what you were telling them, but the evidence was there. Well, I was going to lay out the case. So one of the arguments made was it's not pet overpopulation that kills neonatal kittens when the shelter refuses to implement a foster care program. It's the lack of a foster care program. It's not pet overpopulation when feral cats are killed. It's the lack of a community cat sterilization program that's killing those cats. It is not uh, pet overpopulation that's uh, killing dogs with alleged behavior impediments when dogs don't get walked in the shelter because there's no volunteer program, so they go crazy, or they're not helped with socialization, and they're not helped overcome whatever trauma they might might have had. It's the lack of those programs that is killing the animals. But still, after laying out the case, putting out the numbers, documenting the experience, not just my own, but in other communities that I helped replicate that success, I still was not sure how they were going to react at the end of the presentation after being told that this, particularly this one thing that they believed, that the irresponsible public led to pet overpopulation and pet overpopulation was killing animals. Piercing that why 
was ground zero in the battle for a no-kill nation, how they would respond to that. Yeah, and I remember you were really nervous going out there to give the first presentation. I remember you saying, are they going to throw rotten tomatoes at me? I have no idea. And I mean, it was a, a crowd that you would say had gone to other conferences and was very friendly to the idea. But it they never, were friendly to the idea, idea of no-kill, but they had never heard before. They had that never had it. population was a myth. Right. And that we could be a And that no was the subtitle of your book, yeah. so you're totally going to talk about it. And right? that we could be a no-kill nation today. Yeah, if we just did this now, right? So If we replaced regressive shelter directors, if we implemented the programs and services of the no-kill equation today, not in five years, not in 10 years, not somewhere down the road. Yeah, because that really was the the idea as well that had been promoted under the last thing was if we can just get control of the numbers of animals, eventually we'll be, we'll, we might we'll stop the killing, maybe. In the right. And, and even some no-kill groups like Best Friends was basically kicking the can down the road uh, as a- uh, Well, as they're a, still doing that. Yeah, as a cynical fundraising ploy, you know, like we'll be no-kill kill in five years or will be no well, kill they're in not 10 years. saying these things that need to be said right, about how right. to get they, there. They don't reform the local shelter. They fight art legislation, they as we'll talk about, that we've been trying to, to demandate lives. it. Right. And so it wasn't that there were too many animals and not enough homes. It wasn't that people didn't want the kinds of animals that were in the shelters. The bottom line is we needed to replace regressive directors, replace staff hostile to saving lives. We needed to comprehensively implement the programs and services of the no-kill equation until they replace killing entirely, and we could be a no-kill nation today. And I waited for the other foot to drop. (laughs) And there was thunderous applause. Thunderous applause. I got to imagine they were watching it and it was so convincing because it so resonated with their experiences of like, it's true. You know, like I, they won't let us have those kittens and they're killing them, but we would save them. That right? reminds me that one of the people eventually emailed me and said, you don't know me. And I was going to be part of a group that was going to protest your talk, but I couldn't get anybody to also come out and protest. So I was going to challenge you. Oh, in, in person after your presentation, yeah, I was going to. the Q&A, yeah. right? And she said, I sat there and listened and I owe you an apology. She was dumbfounded probably, right? Like, oh my God, it just makes so much sense, right? right? Well, and that's the thing also that the, what it is or what you're advocating has been misrepresented often. And, and I knew then we were going to She win. didn't know. She didn't know. Again, right. didn't know what she didn't know. Right. Yeah. Okay, so so we started on the East Coast and slowly moved towards the West Coast. And as we did that, the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we would do a lot of promotion uh, with the local media before we get there. We would do a press release. The, the local rescue group that had sponsored you would promote it. And so it was usually often you it would get in the newspaper. And if you now look at a Google search for the term no-kill, you can see on the Google chart that comes up that the term for no-kill it's pretty much just the straight line down pretty low on the bottom. And then 2008, it shoots literally, it's almost a 90 degree angle that it just goes up because it just set the nation of animal of, of animal lovers and rescuers on fire, this message, as, as it swept across the country. It was so exciting. And so the combination of the Redemption Book Tour, our step-by-step guides, our legislative efforts. Consulting with different our, communities. Our direct yeah. assistance to shelters, turning shelters around, and our litigation. We were literally spreading like wildfire 
across the country. Also that you turned Redemption into a documentary and that, and then you did another tour for oh, that. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> so Redemption, no which is, is available, you can watch it on, on YouTube for free. The No Kill uh, is Love tour in it, 2014, I think, to 2016. It, it was uh, an award-winning movie, won, um, won an award at the San Pedro Film Festival. It and, was screened on PBS. It became part of a university film series. It received a lot of acclaim, and it was screened in, uh, I think, 25 or 30 and if you, nationwide. And then we decided to have a conference. Yeah, we decided to have a conference, and that really made a, a profound difference, too. NoCo was succeeding across the country in these various communities. We invited a lot of the speakers from, from, from the these communities. communities. that had turned around. So it was literally spreading like wildfire across the country. And you were starting to see no-kill communities spread all over the country. And I was being invited to speak, you know, in Australia, in New Zealand, in the Czech Republic, elsewhere in Europe. And we thought, let's bring everybody to one place, to our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Yes, George Washington University hosted it. Right. And the first year, we sold out in a day. And the next year, uh, we sold out quickly again, and we started taking up more and more buildings at GW. And one, I think the last year that we had the conference, we had over a 1,000 people. We had people from almost every state. We had people from something like 10-plus countries around the globe. We had shelter directors. We had legislators. We had lawyers. We had veterinarians. Uh, we had board members. We had rescuers. The speakers were – so you had, for instance, we had you had activists that had successfully run – a political campaign for reform in their community. They were giving a talk about how do you fight the shelter in your community that refuses to change. You had uh, animal behaviorists talking about rehabilitation. You had veterinarians talking about medical rehabilitation. We had uh, legislators, legislators lobbyists, lawyers who successfully fought So it was like not only were the people that came to the conference, but also the the speakers, they were a very wide array of expertises that they were sharing about. Successful. So much so that we got the attention of the large national groups. So yeah, so this is where HSU yeah. sent representatives, ASPCA sent representatives, and which uh, okay, I mean that is amazing that they did that because, like I had said earlier, was that we knew having appealed to these organizations in vain, writing them letters, trying to share the good news, and to get not just no response. In fact, before you went on the Redemption book tour. They had all come together to release their own press release to sort of take the wind out of your sails. Um, ASPCA and HSUS, they had done a preemptive strike against your book tour by issuing a public declaration against no kill, saying that killing was necessary. And we, we had realized that the goal was to make it so that people don't buy their garbage anymore, that they know how to respond to it to change the climate of public opinion that these groups operate in, to have them then get to the point where they are like, oh my God, we can't ignore this anymore. And sending representatives to the No-Kill Conference was a a turning point. Right. We... At that point, the sales of redemption were somewhere on the order of 100 a day. You know, we had crossed the 100,000 sales mark. The No-Kill Conference was the fastest growing animal welfare conference in the United States. We were winning 
across the country in the media. I mean, the the type of reporting on no kill profoundly changed. Oh, that changed, changed as well. From right. everything I was saying was controversial, and I was sort of the villain in news stories. Like HSUS says this, and this guy thinks it's a different way. And by the end, I was having reporters say to me. Well, well, of course. Nobody right. Like, what's so kill. controversial about yeah, that? Yeah, no one wants to kill dogs and cats. Like, it became non-newsworthy that there was this conflict, right? Because who would be against saving dogs and cats? So we were winning in the media. We were winning at the level of the city council and local shelters were changing from kill to no kill. Our conference was exploding. Redemption was selling like gangbuster. The movie was being shown to sold out theater audiences, winning awards. And so it brought these national groups to their knees. And yeah, which was exactly what we had intended. Right. And and they, they pushed our, all our speakers. And that actually – so our goal was to change these organizations because they were so influential. And all, all the speakers that we had at this conference then went to speak and promote those programs of the No Kill Equation at their conferences, which was a huge victory. Right. But as we talked about in our podcast, The Co-Optation of Austin Pets Alive, there was a dark danger to- There was what, a dark underbelly. Underbelly to that that we will talk about in our next podcast. However, I do want to say, because again, one of the things, the themes of this, if, if anything, is, is what you know in retrospect, was the last conference was when Seth Godin- I know, How would you define Seth Godin? What is his- So Seth Godin is probably the number one business blogger and author in the world. Okay, he had a very bestsellers in multiple countries. His books are translated to multiple languages, and he is a speaker and consultant for Fortune 100 companies. He had some best-selling books, one of them being Tribes, where he actually featured you and talked about the success of Tompkins County in, and San in a Francisco way, and other in other communities in in a way of saying like look these people that see things differently and then try to rally people to their cause he gave you as a case study right. so you knew him from right. that and he and was you, the keynote speaker yeah you invited at, him to speak which was we, we found out later we were really lucky because he doesn't really do that a lot and he well he Seth Godin was such a sought after speaker but he was enamored of our cause that he made the exception it was great and and i and he by the way and he was a fabulous speaker too oh. so so entertaining and yeah. so interesting but i and i still remember it i do you remember when he said what he said to us yeah. i did a presentation at that ended your introductory remarks where we had a visual image of all the communities across the country that were reporting no kill success. And it was astonishing given how it had been just several years before. And a new no-kill community was coming up with every beat of the song and it just went on, on and, and on, on and, and on. on. And In it was such a dramatically short period and, of time. And when I did that presentation, because I had to figure out where these communities were, I started to, and, and at the end, I wanted to represent them all on one map. What I noticed that there was clusters. So and and when I showed that map to you also that you could see that that these were people these were areas of the country where you knew that there was a lot of no kill conference representation that a lot of people from the no that area had come to the no kill conference especially clustered around Washington D.C. where it was very easy and convenient for people to come and so it was this visual representation of the success of our little Johnny Appleseed effort both going across the country and then also through the no kill conference and knowing where these people had come from and just seeing how it exploded. And also to your Cortland point about Cortland County, New York, about how Ithaca influenced the communities around there, like the power of an idea whose time has come was so 
profound in such a short time. It was just an explosion of no-kill communities. And I would say that, you know, definitely Redemption and the book tour and then the documentary tour were big, but the no-kill conference was huge. And it was sort of the high watermark of, of the success of spreading that message was you know, that that last conference, I don't think we could have seen what was coming because, because we were, on but this, someone did. Yes. We <laughs> so, were on this high. Yeah. And we thought that it would just, that I think that you and I, I mean, I know from conversations that we had had that you and I believe that if we could just get the killers out of these people that had become complacent with the killing, if we could just get them out of the, out, not just out of the way, but out of the shelters and make it safe for animal lovers to come. Like the story that you told of the woman that would never go to the shelter because she loved animals too much and it broke her heart. How many animal lovers are out there across the country that could go back into their shelters and make these places amazing if only it wasn't a, ter- a terrible place to go, an emotionally wretching place to go because of the killing? If you make the shelters safe for animals, you make Make them it safe, safe for, for animal, animal lovers, lovers to right. go back in. And, and our belief that once we got these animal lovers back in, that the sky was the limit, that all these things would flow from that and the progress would just continue. And I think eventually believed it would go back to being the fierce advocates for all animals in their community the way they were in Henry Burke's time. And so we were incredibly optimistic. And then Seth Godin said something to us that – Yeah, we were at the conference in that, which he that, was the keynote speaker. <laughs> that at the time, I, I don't think that you and I – Really grasped the gravity or, We it. didn't have the um, – you know, he that's his specialty. Like he understood how human nature in these movements tend to work. And he said something to us that was pretty – Depressing, prescient, yeah. prescient prophetic, and uh, and, and now so with the history on. of time, absolutely right. Yeah. So you and I were we were outside in the conference room. It was during lunch. People were inside. It, having it was during lunch. lunch, and so most people were actually eating. I think lunch had just started, so people were inside the big conference room. And you and I were out at some of the registration tables organizing some things. And he, came, he was ready to go. He was done. He came to say goodbye. He came to say goodbye, and he asked us, "How big is your movement?" And how many, how many people, people are, are here? Conference from what state? So he was he countries? was he was actually getting yeah. benchmarks to try to right. figure out where where in the process is this movement on the on the continuum way, of, of continuum of history. Right. Where are they right now? And he said to us when we told him yeah, how many people were there. What other questions did he ask you? What states? From what countries? He looked at us and he said, "Your movement is about to splinter." And that is the topic that we will discuss in the next podcast because he was absolutely right. If you want to learn more about these and other animal issues, visit NathanWinograd.com, AllAmericanVegan.com, NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org, and subscribe on Substack.